If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Mark Twain. He'll be answering our call on April 14, 1910, seven days before he died at the age of 74. Twain used many names in his life, signing some of his work John Snooks, Thomas Jefferson Snodgrass, and Epaminondas Adrastus Perkins. But we remember him most for his novel that changed literature forever, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, the story of a boy faking his death to travel the Missouri River with Jim, an escaped slave. What made this book so extraordinary and caused it to be banned in its time was the fact that it was written in the common language using slang instead of highbrow English that readers were accustomed to. But Twain was not just an author. He was a failed gold miner, a surfer, a world traveler, the first stand-up comedian, and a self-promoter like the world has never seen. He was a walking contradiction, criticizing the rich, and then buying a robber baron's mansion, only to go bankrupt years after. Later in his life, his writings and demeanor became very dark after outliving his family that kept his eccentric personality centered. It is at that time that we'll call him today to hear of his tragedy, his brilliance, his comedy, and the reason why he wrote his autobiography that could not be published until 100 years after his death. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and riverboat pilots everywhere, I give you Samuel Langhorn Clemens. Hello, is that you, Mr. Twain? Why, yes. Um, who am I speaking with today? Oh, sir, I am so excited to speak with you. My name is Tony Dean. I am calling you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding in your hand is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if we were sitting near one another next to the river enjoying a drink. And it also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world which will go to some of the places that, of course, a lot of the places you've already been and even places that you have, haven't been yet. And, sir, I was just hoping that I could ask you a few questions because you've lived an amazing life. But before I do, I understand this is a very strange introduction. Can I answer any questions for you? Well, yeah. It sounds like Mr. Edison or, or Graham Bell or Tesla has been at work again talking about uh, a, a smartphone uh, Bell's telephone was pretty dumb, if you ask me, to have one wire. But I, I did experiment with Mr. Edison's uh, uh, photograph recordings and try to dictate one of my books to it. But uh, I went back to using the typewriter instead. I'm probably yeah. one of the first authors to ever use the typewriter. But then I went back to just writing my manuscripts by hand and letting somebody else do the work of typing. Well, I'm not surprised that you were one of the first authors to use that because I'll tell you what, it appears that you were very interested in technology and you're very interested, I mean, if, definitely if you're spending time with Tesla and you know advancements of humankind. And I think that if you were in my time so many years later, I think that you would be pretty amazed at how easy it is to write something or record something. But you, so you mentioned that you'd spent some time with uh, Mr. Tesla, huh? Well, yeah, I, I, I knew him briefly and enjoyed the things that he was doing. Um, you know that Mr. Tesla and, uh, and, and Edison had a falling out. Uh, Tesla used to work for Edison. Uh, I tried to not get in the middle of that quarrel. I enjoyed both inventors, um, had designs myself to be an inventor. But I was never real successful. I did get three patents, however. One was for a garment holder, which would go around the calf of your leg to hold up your your shoes. And then there was 
of the uh, self-pacing scrapbook, which was successful, the only one of my patents that was successful, and I don't know, I forget what the third one was. I may think of it hereafter. Well, no, I know what it was. <laughs> I patented a, a board game to help people remember historical dates. You know, as I've gotten older, my memory is getting poor in my old age. When I was a young man, I could remember anything, whether it happened or not. But I've How gotten old older. Now, well, I'm 74. You know, as I've gotten older, I can only remember those things that never happened. And I'm usually not encouraged <laughs> to tell about them. So I may be just a little bit uh, forgetful during this conversation, but I'll try to be truthful and accurate. Well, that, that'll that be plenty. You know, it, it's interesting when you say you only remember the things that never happened. Those seem like the easiest things to remember for all of us. <laughs> yes, yes. It's it's whatever <laughs> happened to us through the years has been embellished and retold to where what is told today is, has very little resemblance to what actually happened. There, there was a story in our time uh, not too long ago where a reporter reported this this, this incredible war story, they found out later that none of it actually happened. But he had lived such a full life that he, he, he claimed to mix it up with, with uh, stories that had actually happened when, in fact, this incredible story had never happened. But he, well, he you sure know, found a way to remember it. You know, uh, some of my first writings were similar. I get credit for the uh, a jumping fog of Calaveras County and Grandfather's Old Ram and the Blue Jay Yarn, but they really were stories I heard while I was prospecting up on Jackass Hill. Now, uh, I will preface that uh, Jackass Hill was named that before I arrived. <laughs> but I'm sure you would have named it that anyhow had it had it not been. <laughs> uh, speaking of of your of your writings, the the writing that in our time that most people relate to you would be about Huckleberry Finn. And I, I hope that I could share something about Huckleberry Finn that, that might interest you. About 11 years ago from our time, and my understanding right now is in your time, is it, is it 1910, is that right? Yes, sir. It, it is April 14, 1910 today. Okay. I just, well, I, just, I just got back from a troop trip to Bermuda. Well, I, gosh, I would love to hear about that. I want to I I mention this. About 11 years ago, there was a person that becomes a famous writer known in our time. And you, you wouldn't know of him yet, but he's just a kid right now in your time. And he lived an extraordinary life in the same way that you have. I mean, it just seems that you've been involved in everything, things that we're going to talk about during this call, hopefully. He was an, an extraordinary writer. He was a drinker and a gambler, and he was a traveler, and he was just <laughs> probably the life of the party, as were you. In fact, I almost as I read about his life, I, I feel like he almost, as you reaching your later years, kind of just passed the torch. He, it just seems like he lived your life. Well, he's going to be a great writer one day, even though he's 11 right now. This person's name is Hemingway, and he, he wrote, as he got older, he said, all modern American literature comes from one book by Mark Twain called Huckleberry Finn. This guy's one of the most prolific writers of our time. And he looks at that book and said, everything that happened after that was because of that. I'm curious, can, what, would, what can you tell me about this book? Or, I mean, why, what was the purpose of writing it? Well, the purpose... I tried to, to, to write Huckleberry Finn several times before I really got to getting into it with Ernest as a sequel to my boy's book, Tom Sawyer. You know, that's where you're first introduced to Huck Finn. By the way, Huck Finn was a real boy. His name was Tom Blankenship, and he was the son of the town drunk. Uh, <laughs> but, any, but anyway... Um, he was such a major character in Tom Sawyer that I wanted a book written around him. I started it several times and didn't get very far. But I took a trip down the 
Mississippi River again to refresh my memory in getting prepared to write life on the Mississippi and drawing that uh, venture and that voyage, I became alarmed by the conditions that were in post-Reconstruction Civil War. I was appalled at the number of lynching of our black citizens. And it struck me that, that, that I could uh, write a discourse with Huck Finn being in the center of uh, that dastardly society that supported slavery. And uh, I've looked back on it. Uh, you know, I tried to, uh, to bring a public conscience to the evils that I grew up with, not even knowing that they were evils as a child. Uh, but I wanted the, the, the white population to understand the conditions of the social uh, structure that I grew up in. Um, so anyhow, I sat down and wrote it around that. That, that was probably the purpose. Oh, of course, the other purpose, of course, was to make money. Uh, right. But, uh, <laughs> but, but uh, I'm saying that I had a, a feeling that the white society needed to know the degradations that slavery had occurred. Uh, and so there was the majority of that whole thing. Uh, people have com complained a little bit about how silly it got at the end of the book with Tom Sawyer's uh, imagination running rampant and trying to free uh, Jim. Uh, I will give you a little inside story there. I had pretty much finished the writing of the book, and it was short, the, the, the thickness is needed. You understand, you got to understand that most of my books were sold through subscription, meaning that you would have a canvasser of salesmen go out to the farmers and say, here's a book and here's a book. Uh, we want to want to sell you one. Well, you know, a farmer was very particular about how he let go of his money in those days. Uh, if he could buy a book that was 600 pages long for three dollars, as opposed to one that was 100 pages long, he would buy the 600-page book with illustrations, so, I might add. So anyhow, so you those added, last... You added, the, you added the extra words to make it worth more. Yeah. Yes, I did that. I want to make it sellable. Yeah, I did that in several of those subscription books. Those chapters were added about, and now, now I had taken that Tom Sawyer showed up and, and the, the, the confusion over who Huck Finn was was not really Tom. That was solved. That was kind of where we ended it. But all the escape and evasion chapters was added simply for volume. Similar in my second book, Roughing It, I had intended to write a separate book on my trips to the, the uh, Sandwich Islands, which later became Hawaii, uh, in another book. But my roughing a book about my trip out west was, again, short. Uh, and similarly uh, with other books, um, those the, the, I simply had to add material. A person of your mind has to appreciate the absurdity of taking like this fantastic piece of work and knowing that the only way anybody is going to buy it and therefore read it is to add more to it that maybe is not as good as, as what you had originally. So I find that there are a lot of contradictions in your life because I feel like adding those extra words to sell it would have had to create an argument between the artist and you. You know, almost as if you would, might be thinking, how can they just not understand this is the book? And yet the practical side of you says, well, but it's got to sell too, and so I've got to add a bunch of words that really don't make a difference. I mean, is there a struggle when you're doing that? Well, first struggle is to feed the family and, and put heat in the furnace, but the, the second struggle is to understand that, okay, I need more material now, let's try to be professional here and do a good job. Sometimes that works out. 
adding the whole the, the Sandwich Island chapters to roughing it didn't hurt it at all. It just extended the story beyond where I intended to stop it. Uh, some critics have said uh, that those added chapters to Huckleberry Finn uh, detracted from the story, and I, I'm not going to disagree with that. Uh, the other thing about the comments that you made to that other gentleman was I see Huckleberry Finn as being the first real attempt in the literature of the time to speak in an American voice or voices. Tom Sawyer got there a little bit, but Huckleberry Finn was written in the vernacular, and most of the book was written in conversation. And, uh, you know, it ended up being a banned book several times in my lifetime. The great people of the New England Literary Society banned it from their libraries because of its poor grammar. They couldn't stand the, the, the vernacular and the slang and the common language of the common people. You see, most authors before that book were always trying to emulate the highbrow writing of European writers. Oh, I see. So this would have been, when you were, write, when you were writing this and you were writing it with more common speech, were you worried that maybe people wouldn't get it then because it was so different? Well, that didn't concern me too much. I kind of figured there were more people would understand that than some of the long words used in those other things. It was, I think, a little bit hard for Eastern folks to decipher the language of our black folk and maybe some of the language and terms used by our country folk that I used in that. I, I did take a lot of time to remember and to talk with people who has still had those dialects there in Missouri during that uh, trip down to Mississippi so I could accurately write it. The, the spelling posed some problems so that you could get the right phrasing or the right syntax to the word. But uh, again, those highbrows in the New England Literary Society didn't get the idea. That makes a lot of sense. You know, in uh in our, in our current time, unbelievably, I mean, the number of books that this has sold throughout the years, I, I can't even tell you because it would make you very unhappy because I know you haven't been paid royalties on all the copies that have been sold. But there are a lot of places where it is still banned, but it's not banned because it is spoken in common speech. It, it's banned because of one word. And it's what would a that word be? That, <laughs> Well, it is a word that starts with an N that in this time we call the N-word, that it is so destructive to say that word out loud that it literally is not said out loud, the word referring to black citizens at the time or maybe black slaves. But that word, it creates so much, such an intense reaction that this book is banned in a, in a lot of schools, even in this time. Uh, and so, uh, does that surprise you? Well, not necessarily that it was banned. Uh, that word in my day was common vernacular. Uh, and, and again, when, when the New England Literary Society banned it, they were talking about grammar. Oh, they had some discussion, as I did with, uh, with William Dean Howells, my, my editor and publisher, about the vulgarity in the book. But the vulgarity didn't even reflect that N-word. It was the other things, the slang and guttural language of the people. You know, people just do not want to look at the truth and reality that I try to put into that book. Uh, while Tom Sawyer, a great percentage of it was really true about the things that me and my mates were involved in there in Hannibal, whereas the, the storyline in Huck Finn is more fictitious. It really did depict the social climate that we were in. And I think that the human race has always had problems in facing the reality and the truth of, of what has been and what is. They just do not want to face reality. Uh, it would be yeah. a shame in my mind that the book would be banned because of the use of a word that 
that was descriptive of the time. It's so interesting because this is why you are so loved in, in, in our time, and I know in uh, much of your time, although I, I know you've definitely seen some, some ups and some downs as far as how people looked at you, depending on you know, wh- where you were in the process of making your name, but you're revered in this time. And it, it's incredible because people feel that way about you because you did speak your mind and you did put yourself out there and, and, and risk saying things that could require, you know, might require people to think differently. You know, you just weren't following, you know, the path that everybody else would follow. You're always doing something different, it seems, uh, which is extraordinary. And it, it seems like you didn't quit doing that to the last day of your life. There is something that is confusing me a little bit. I hope you could clear this up. Huck Finn was published in 1865, and I know, or, eight, or 1885, if minor dates are right. And yes, sir, that sounds Civil about War, right. 1885, okay. But the Civil War ended 20 years prior to that. And so you had said that, you know, you were trying to maybe teach people about, you know, all the lynchings you said of, of the black citizens and the poor treatment of black citizens. Well, if the black citizens were freed at the end of the Civil War, which is 20 years prior to Huck Finn. Why do you need to explain that to them? Aren't these people free for 20 years? Well, they are and they aren't. There's the type of freedom that comes by law on paper, and then there's the kind of freedom that comes by the human race, understanding that equality is a quality that we should all strive for, whether it be between races, ethnicities, or or the sexes. Again, you've got to remember while the Civil War officially hostilities end in 65, Reconstruction lasted for 12 years. So the conditions under oppressing or having Union troops in southern states caused a lot of problems with uh, a reconciliation of the states and society. What happened in the years following that, and as I was going down the river in 82, was an unfortunate retaliation by white society against the black citizens that had been freed. you got to understand that the United States government in several areas disenfranchised the white, white people who had participated in the war by disenfranchising, they were not allowed to hold office, political office and things of that sort. And they often put up, uh, I don't want to call them puppet governments, but they, they supported black people in a free society to take those offices. And there's a great deal of resentment. I believe if we hadn't had Reconstruction and had Lincoln not been assassinated, we would have had a more pleasant outcome in reconciliation and and that uh, we would not be suffering quite as much the degradations of of, uh, of racial disharmony as we are seeing today and we were seeing at that time. So I thought that my book might be able to point this out to get people to realize what was happening. I would say that it was a civil rights discourse that I hoped that it would help educate people, but then it became so controversial, I'm not sure that I achieved my goal. Oh, I think, I think you probably did, but if it wasn't controversial, I think that you well know that nobody would have read it. <laughs> and so I think it probably had to be controversial to, to get people to re- read it, even though this, uh, your, your subscription model of where you have people going out and selling books certainly was a fantastic strategy. I know that there are other books that you wrote that people didn't read. And this is certainly one that was controversial that, that they did. You had mentioned Lincoln. And I know that you have no opinions on politics at all. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you, surely you, Jess. <laughs> I definitely do, Jess. Tell me what your feelings are about Lincoln. Well... I'm a bit biased towards Mr. Lincoln. Uh, You know, uh, I have two feelings towards Mr. Lincoln. First of all, 
he created the war that uh, put me out of a job as uh, a pilot on the river. I loved that profession before all others and thought I would die behind the wheel. But when the war came, it ceased all commerce on the Mississippi. And uh, 15 of us got together in Marion County there next to Hannibal. Uh, Fifteen of us that had been on the river as, as river boys. Uh, and we joined into a um, uh, confederacy, uh, unregulated, irregular confederate unit called the Marion Rangers. I served for two weeks, and then I seceded from the secession. In other words, I deserted. <laughs> well, as a young man studying for the gallows, I needed to watch that I didn't get my neck stretched. Well, luckily, my brother Orion, uh, 10 years older than me, uh, I had worked for Orion off and on in his newspapers. Uh, but Orion had uh, known um, Edward Bates in St. Louis in the 1840s. Now, Edward Bates would end up becoming uh, Abraham Lincoln's attorney general. Well, during the campaign, my brother Orion campaigned for Abraham Lincoln there in Missouri which was not uh, without its risk, seeing as how we were a slave state. And uh, so anyway, after Lincoln was elected, uh, Edward Bates uh, thought that Orion should be rewarded. And Abraham Lincoln appointed my brother, Orion, to be secretary to the governor of the Nevada Territory. Now, Orion offered me a job as his private secretary, if I would pay for our stagecoach ride out to Nevada. You see, Orion could never run to, rub two nickels together at any one time. I should know. Uh, when I worked for him for the newspaper, it was always for $5 a week, and I'm still waiting for the first $5. Well, after He never, uh, he never paid you? Uh, I don't remember ever getting paid by him. I, I might eat dinner at his house, but... Uh, I don't remember any cash payment. He was always so poor and in debt. But anyway, uh, being a riverboat pilot that I just uh, concluded with Lincoln's War, which, by the way, in Missouri was called the War of Northern Aggression, um, it was one of the highest paid jobs in the United States. I probably made more as a pilot than what Lincoln did as president. So I had some money, so I paid our, our way out to, uh, to Nevada. And you see, then, by being a private secretary to an appointment to the secretary's job in Nevada, I was under the protection of Mr. Abraham Lincoln and his United States government being in his employ. So I have mixed feelings and biased feelings about Mr. Lincoln's politics. Do you think that he did more good than he did bad? Um... You know, it was a serious thing to tear our society totally apart. I do think that uh, the, the Emancipation Proclamation, which in uh, practice didn't do a thing, but in theory and later did free the slaves, was a tremendous thing to happen. Uh, again, I'm saying that uh, his Emancipation Proclamation was a war measure. Uh, it, it didn't free anybody at the time, but its emphasis or impetus uh, meant that uh, we went down that path and started the bolter rolling down the hill, which could not be stopped. And I think that was a good thing. I wish that he had not been assassinated. I think we'd be in a better place had his good humor and guidance been allowed to continue to shape us right after the Civil War. When the war ended, the radical Republicans got control. And, uh, you know, that pendulum in history has a tendency to swing from one way to the other. I don't know if that continues in your day. I think Lincoln definitely would be thrilled to hear what I'm going to tell you right now. And that is, within the last 10 years, we've had our first black president. And as you oh, look my. at that, yeah, I mean, what do you, when, you, when you hear that, what does it make you think? Well, uh, as I got older and got away from my childhood, uh, I realized uh, 
what lies had been told in the pulpit about slavery being a, a good thing and, and being supported by the Bible. Yes, yeah, slavery was an institution that was talked about in the Bible because slavery has been with mankind his whole life. Uh, that doesn't mean it was right. I, I once said that uh, we had ground all the manhood right out of them with our treatment of them. Uh, I'll give you a few examples. Uh, looking at uh, at the character Jim in, in Huckleberry Finn, I had several people that came to mind as I was developing that character. The first was Uncle Daniel that was on my Uncle John's uh, Quarles Farm there in Florida, Missouri, where I was born. I spent a good deal of my childhood summers there. He was a lovely old man, an uncle uh, to all of our kids, white and black. Then there was uh, George Griffin, who came to me at my Hartford house soon after I was born uh, to wash windows, and he ended up being my butler. We had a relationship there for some, I would say, 20 years, uh, and it just goes to prove to me, you know, other black friends I had was Frederick Douglass. Uh, um, and Cord was uh, a, a house uh, worker in my sister's home, sister-in-law's home back in Elmira. That's where the story, uh, a true story, just as I heard it, came from. Booker T. Washington was another gentleman that I had the privilege of knowing and speaking with and supporting. Uh, through that whole thing, it just came down to, again, show us the absolute ignorance of people not thinking that they did not possess the same qualities, dignities, and intelligence as us. I did support two gentlemen to Yale paid their tuitions. Walter McGlim, who was studying Typer, and Charles J. Johnston, that pursued a law degree. So it does not surprise me uh, what you have said. I mean, it's, it seems like a long road for you to get to a point when you were a child, you mentioned, and at a as a child, I mean, you're being taught in the pulpit that Slavery is in the Bible, and it's normal, and it's just a normal way of society. And then somehow you went all the way from that point to where you're now talking about these extraordinary men like Frederick Douglass and Booker T. Washington, and it is clear that you agree that whites are as intelligent as, as blacks. That's at least what I'm hearing. I may be wrong. But where along the way, where was the moment along the way where you realized, wait a minute, what I'm being taught about slavery is wrong. Like, this is not right, and these people are not less. Like, was there one, was there one moment? Um, there's never one moment in a revelation like that, I don't think. I can't think of putting my hand on a particular time, and it all dawned on me. I think it's a compilation of experiences. If I had to track it to a particular place and time when the real beginning started turning in my mind, was in that uh, trip that uh, I took on the steamer Ajax uh, on its second voyage to the Sandwich Island. I was working for the Sacramento Union, and I was the first reporter ever to go to that island, and I wrote travel letters back from it. And they're observing the interactions of our uh, white missionaries with the Canucks, which was the the uh, indigenous habit tents there. They had a beauty and dignity about them, and their whole culture was uh, of interest to me. Uh, yet the missionaries, uh, to, uh, let me think of the phrase I want to say here, uh, the Christian principle that, that nobody else's habits need more reforming than theirs. Something that's not exactly the way I turned it. But it, it started dawning on me then that, uh, yes, you know, we don't value other people's cultures and heritages. And I, I did write at some point in time, it, it is uh, unfortunate 
the white savage thinks that he's better than all the other savages. <laughs> well, what is, you know, what is your opinion of mankind? Because that is a strong statement of you saying that we're just all savages, which I completely agree with. And oh, well, especially, especially the men. What is your opinion you, on that? You, you want me to talk about the damn human race? Is that what you want me to talk about? I would love to hear your opinions about the human well, race. Well, it's a comical invention, the human race, any way you look at it. Sometimes I think it's a shame that Noah and his party did not miss the boat. <laughs> you probably notice that the human race is a curiosity. It started out a little lower than the angels. It's been getting a little lower ever since. Man is a marvel. He's invented himself a heaven. Man is really the most interesting jackass there is. He sets up <laughs> nights thinking that the deity sets up nights to admire him. You know, I wonder if God created man because he was disappointed in the monkey. <laughs> oh my well, gosh man is the only animal that blesses or needs to well you just have to remember that man was made at the end of the week's work could it be that God was getting a little tired I, is, is that enough soliloquy on what I think of man I, I think that you have made your point very clear let me go back to uh, riverboat piloting. Yes, sir. Your life, if I was to find, if I was to make a judgment as to the, the one place that your life and your experiences always go back to, it wouldn't be religion or politics or maybe even family, but it does appear to me that somehow you always end up back at that river. And and the time that you spent as a riverboat pilot, the people that you met, and the experiences. Somehow, everything comes back to the river. Is that the way you feel about the river? Oh, uh, yes. Um, you know, I once wrote a well-drawn figure in fiction or biography. I have a warm personal interest in him for the reason I have known him before I met him on the river. My education really came about in the human nature by observing all the people that I came across working with or observing while I was on that river. It's been a central part of my life, and I don't think that I could ever wash it out if I tried. So much seems to have come from that place. As you're, as you're floating down the river, whether you were working as a, a river pilot, are you meeting people and having these experiences and just cataloging them in your mind and saying, you know, that's going to be a character in a book, you know, that I'm going to write later, or that's interesting, i got to remember that? Is that how you experience the people that you met and, and your time on the river? Well, you know, I went down the river there in 57-58 uh, on the John Paul Jones with the idea I was going to go to, to the Amazon and become a cattle rancher. When I got into New Orleans, I found that there were no ships going to the Amazon. But I'd met Mr. Bixby, Captain Bixby, and uh, I'd always wanted to be a riverboat pilot, and so I convinced him to take me on as his apprentice. He charged me $500, $100 up front, which I borrowed from my sister, Familia, who had married a wealthy businessman in St. Louis, and the other 400 was to be paid after I'd gotten my license and, and started paying back. But basically, on our first, on our first trip upriver, he started pointing out, there's Six Mile Point, there's Ben's Curve, there's Twelve Miles Point. Well, I thought this was very entertaining, him showing me all the points in the river. Well, later on in the shift, he turns around and says, tell me what the first point is up out of Orleans. And I said, well, I don't know. Well, what's the second point? Well, basically, I had been listening, but I hadn't been paying attention. So he instructed me that I daggone better well get a journal and start writing these things down, that he wasn't speaking for 
the benefit of conversation, he was trying to teach me the river. Well, that started my days of keeping a journal. Now, most of that journal was, again, about the things I needed to know in piloting the river. That journal keeping came along where they were side notes and things. So I don't really think I started keeping a journal in the idea of writing a book until after or until that first voyage on the first cruise ship to Europe, that Quaker City that produced my first book, Innocence Abroad. Uh, then again, it could have started back when I was writing the travel letters from Hawaii. Again, the book idea just really didn't come up until after that voyage to Europe. Uh, again, I was commissioned there. I was paid by the California Ultra, which was my employer after the Sacramento Union's uh, trip to Hawaii. The Ultra contacted me to do travel letters, and I sailed down the, the coast there of California, came across at Nicaragua, and then through Gulf of Mexico back to New York, and so I wrote them travel letters about that. That's when I learned about the Quaker City excursion. Again, I consider it to be the first cruise ship to ever leave the the U.S., and I became the first reporter to to go on that. It was the first trip to Europe and the Holy Lands for a Christian crusade to to take people there. Henry Ward Beecher had organized it. He was the uh, a prominent uh, pastor of Plymouth Congregational Church in New York. Unfortunately, he withdrew from going himself, as, as did uh, General Sherman that was supposed to have gone. So I ended up being the most notorious person on that cruise, but I joined some 35 or 40 other mainly Christian group to tour the Holy Lands and there. So when I got back, Eliza's Bliss encouraged me to write a book about that based upon the travel letters that I had sent back to the Alta. And, of course, I did a half a dozen or so uh, letters to other papers that I had associated in New York. After that, then became the idea, hey, while those travel letters became my journal, after that I started keeping journals wherever I went, noting people and things for the possibility of other writings. You know, I didn't just write books. Depending on what list you look at, the number of books is somewhere around 34. But I wrote hundreds of short stories, thousand, over a thousand essays, probably 5,000 or more articles for newspapers, and tens of thousands of, of, of letters. I've lectured over a thousand times, and I've given over a thousand speeches. So, you know, it, it was a matter that uh, after that first book, or after that, yeah, after that first book, when I really started taking notes, and I have accumulated several notebooks that I'm still uh, looking at things to write and to publish. It would be interesting because I would, based on what you're saying, I would expect that if I were to look back through your books when you first started taking notes as a riverboat pilot, I see a note saying, don't hit this shallow part of water, and then next to it a note that says, remember the kid fishing on the beach with the two dogs. And then later on, that, that person becomes uh, part of a story. Would, would, would your notes look something like that? Well, not those initial ones. Understand that that's the reason I re-embarked on a river cruise there in 1882. And floating down that river then was with the idea of writing a book. So that's Actually, that was the whole purpose. Yes. So that's when memory started flooding back in comparison my journals of, of, of the detail of the river. And there were a few side notes there, uh, you know, uh, especially if it was a steamboat explosion or something like that, a uh, humorous story sometimes there. Because I, I did, uh, I did uh, think about putting things in the newspaper. After all, you know, when I was, uh, my father died and I was apprenticed out to become a printer's devil, which means I started sweeping the floors and uh, and picking up print and putting them back into the uh, boxes. That's where the thing uh, comes from, the old phrase, mind your P's and Q's. 
because when they've been dropped on the floor, they look very similar. Uh, but you wanted to make sure that you put them back in the right pigeonholes uh, when, when you put it in the box so the people setting print would, would put a P for a P, not a P for a Q. Um, so anyway, I didn't know that's where that came from. Yes, sir, it is. Uh, so anyway, I did uh, my very first uh, writing thing that I put in the paper was in uh, my brother Orion's paper. He had left to go to St. Louis on some business and left me in charge of making sure the paper came out. Well, of course, when he was gone, I decided that I would slip a few articles into the newspaper. And the very first thing I wrote was about a gallant fireman. That was the first thing in that. And then later on, my very first thing to hit the papers on the East Coast was called the dandy fighting the squatter. So, again, by the time I had gotten to to the Mississippi River and had a few things that I had written into the newspapers, I probably had a few notes there. But, again, it was about that 1882 trip was was when I really had a flood of memory coming back, uh, looking at my other uh, piloting notes and added to those things that you were talking about. What do you prefer? Do you prefer writing books or articles? It's whatever the creative juices comes at the time. Writing a book is a laborious task, trying to carry the theme from the beginning to the end and make it all make sense. Uh, publishing companies wanted a contract with me for a book, and then you take a contract out, and then there's deadlines. Writing articles and short stories, most of those usually weren't under deadline. It was something that you know, an idea hits you, and you sit down and you jot it out. I think it's a little bit more enjoyable to do it that way. Do you prefer, uh, or what's what's more difficult for you, writing the book or selling it? Well... They're equally troublesome at times. Uh, you know, I didn't personally go out and sell the book, but I was always uh, pushing and uh, upset with my publishers that they weren't selling enough of them. Uh, my <laughs> job was to write them. It was their job to sell them. That makes sense. I want to go back to your time in Hamilton. So you, you were born in Florida, Missouri, right? That's correct. It's some 40-odd miles southwest of Hannibal. I spent the first four years of my life there in Florida. You know, I raised its population to an equal 100. I raised it by a full percentage point. Well, you know, other <laughs> great men other great men of history can't make that claim. Shakespeare couldn't do it for London. It might be immodest <laughs> of me, but I did it for Florida. I suppose I could have done it for Paris, but I chose to do it in Florida. I remember the day I was born. <laughs> you you remember the day you were born, huh? Yeah, I hadn't any teeth, and my mother was <laughs> glad. <laughs> it, by the way, is it pronounced Missouri or Missouri? Well, it depends on whether you live in the upper part of Missouri or the lower part of Missouri. I see. Okay. So it's the same place depending with a different pronunciation depending on where you are. Okay. Well, so really, it, it's, it, it, it's the local vernacular versus the uh, educated vernacular. Okay. So when you moved to Hannibal when you were four and, you know, you have these, this childhood that you remember so well, were there other places that you moved in Missouri that you appreciated as much? Did, were there other cities or did you ever get to Kansas City? Uh, was that was Kansas City even important back then? No, St. Joe was more important because you would go up the you would go up the river uh, there from St. Louis. St. Louis was most important gateway to the rest, but you go up the Missouri River in St. Louis uh, to St. Joe uh, and that's where the stagecoach line would go out west. I mean, there were other places there that I visited, but you you can't top uh, Hannibal uh, since I lived there, St. Louis because of its uh, wealth and industry and importance to the river trade. So I would say those two were the most. And then, like I said, where where, where the stagecoach line took off from uh, St. Joseph's. Do you have any idea how many different countries you've been to? I mean, you've traveled so much. 
I can't give you a number. Uh, you know, I, off and on, I spent uh, parts of 14 years in Europe. Started out in the early 1890s because uh, my business adventures uh, were failing. Uh, I was eating up all the income uh, that I was getting from my my publishings. Uh, ran through my wife's inheritances and eventually ended up having to declare bankruptcy. That uh, was the cause of my world tour in 96, 1896. Uh, but it was cheaper to live in uh, in Europe than it was in the United States at that time because of the value of the dollar was so strong. So Isn't we moved right? throughout. Yes, we moved throughout uh, a great deal. You know, England, Scotland, Ireland, France, Germany, uh, Italy, Switzerland, France. Uh, not so much in Spain, although I have visited uh, on that Quaker City tour. Uh, then, of course. Uh, on the world tour, we went and uh, went across the United States in '95. Left from British uh, Columbia, Vancouver, and sailed to New Zealand in the uh, Australia's brief stop in the, the the Hawaii, and then on to Ceylon in India, South Africa, and back up to England. So. You definitely have done some traveling, sir, and I, I love to travel myself. When you went to the Sandwich Islands, which is uh, what we call Hawaii now, and I, I don't know if the name was ever changed to Hawaii when you were there, that was not a part of the United States at the time, was it? No, sir. It was annexed some time later, but uh, at the time it was known as the Sandwich Island is what uh, Captain Cook had named it, but uh, the name Hawaii had applied to to one of the big islands at that time as well. So it kind of became interchangeable the longer that we dealt with it. What was your experience on the Sandwich Islands? Because you were a single man at that point, weren't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. Well, it doesn't me, sound like it was a terrible experience. <laughs> oh, no, it was not. It was not. When I talk to Mark Twain, it makes me want to read Huckleberry Finn again. How did such a complex person become so well known for writing something that was banned for being too simple? I suppose it's just another one of the odd contradictions in his life. If you're ready to hear more and where the name Mark Twain came from, these answers are waiting for you in the next episode. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.